Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're Mumbrella listening to Mumbrella Cast. Mumbrella, Mumbrella Cast. Cast. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast, brought to you by Budget Direct. I'm Mumbrella's content director, Tim Burrows. And I'm Mumbrella's deputy editor, Hannah Blackiston. Joining us to break down the week in media and marketing is Mumbrella's Brittany Rigby. Hello. And Zoe Wilkinson. Hello. This week we will be discussing... The government's promise to crack down on the digital behemoths. Why radio isn't quite as live as it used to be. How Sportsbet did it again. And Australia's declining press freedom. On Monday morning, Australia woke up to one story on the front page of just about every daily paper in the country. The government says it's going to try and force Google and Facebook to pay for news. But the question is, will it work? Um, Brittany, you wrote the news story about this. It's, it, this has been a bit of a process that's been going on for a while. But what's changed in this announcement? So the code was a, a recommendation that came out of the ACCC's report from last year, but the code that they've been talking about previously was voluntary one. So they were hoping to kind of come to some agreement. Michael Miller from News Corp said earlier in the month on radio that he thought progress had been very, very slow and that they couldn't even show they'd gotten to first base essentially. So the change is that the code will no longer be voluntary. It will be mandatory and Google and Facebook will kind of have to come to the party. And let's be clear what we're talking about here. What we're essentially saying is if someone Googles, uh, what was the announcement on virus stats yesterday, and they see a little clip in the search results from Google on, say, the Daily Telegraph from Sydney, if they click on it, now at the moment as it stands, the Daily Telegraph gains by getting that traffic and that audience, but the news providers are arguing that's not enough, that Google should also give them a little bit of money for sending the traffic in that direction. Is, is, is that how we sum it up? I think that's right. And I think you've summed up the tension well, which is that media owners are saying, you've built trillion dollar businesses off the back of our content, which you're not paying for and you're benefiting off of. But then the digital platforms are saying, well, hang on, you are benefiting off of it. We're directing traffic to your website that you never would have otherwise had. So it's not really clear what that kind of payment will look like. I mean, Josh Frydenberg, the treasurer, when he made the announcement, didn't say how payment would work or how how much essentially one click would uh, would be worth or or however it would work. He instead referenced to value exchange and revenue sharing, whatever that means. Interestingly, Hugh Marks did uh, nine CEOs. Also Channel 9. Yeah, he did do the rounds on the morning that the news broke and he was asked on a radio program, well, when do you expect the first check to come in? When do you expect that Facebook and Google will write your check and you will have received money for your content? And he was very optimistic. He said that he expects that it will be July um, when the draft of the code is set to be complete. I think that that might be a little optimistic. I mean, it's one thing to have a draft of a code ready in three months. It's a very different thing to have a binding code 
that from that point onwards, payment will be due. So, yeah, I'm not sure that it will be July as few hopes, but that's certainly kind of the deadline put in place for when they expect something to happen. Well, Hannah, you wrote about this as well this week. You talked to some of the kind of main industry players after the news broke. What sort of messages were they giving you? Um, In what is a fairly rare response from our industry, across the board, it's been pretty positive. They've all said, you know, this is a step in the right direction. It's about time the power was rebalanced. Um, From what I can see, everybody's pretty happy with it. I think... What's quite interesting, and Brittany and I were discussing this earlier in the week, is it almost feels like that we're in a very, very tough time for a lot of media companies at the moment. And obviously, pressure is so high amid COVID-19 and the economic downturn that's followed it. And I think it almost feels like the media industry just needed a win. And it almost feels like maybe they're saying, this is fantastic. We love this. and throwing all their kind of positivity and hope behind it because in what's currently a pretty dark place for the entire industry, this is a tiny glimmer of hope in the distance that maybe there will be some money coming in in the future that isn't currently coming in. Well, Britt, uh, I guess the the two organisations which were probably less delighted were Google and Facebook. What was their take on it? Facebook was pretty explicit. It said that it was disappointed, really. And I think as we chatted about a little bit earlier, both have kind of pointed out that here's all this stuff we've done for publishers. Here's all of this money that we've thrown at them. Facebook's obviously got content deals with a lot of media owners. Um, So look, they're not happy. I wonder whether or not that will lead to trying to work around or find loopholes I mean at this stage it's not even clear what those loopholes would be because we don't know what the code looks like but uh, part of the announcement was you know drawing comparisons to say what's happened in Spain where they attempted a similar thing and Google News just shut down so it would be interesting in whether and something that I've heard from a couple of people around the industry is people kind of are in small pockets speculating whether or not it will mean Facebook just pulls previews or, you know, whether or not Google pulls previews or whether or not it they kind of attempt some other ways to not have to pay, which could be bad for publishers ultimately if, you know, the traffic doesn't continue coming their way. So some are saying that it might not be as hopeful and positive for media owners as kind of media owners are saying it will be, but we'll have to wait and see. One really interesting argument I've heard um, coming from kind of the big tech platforms is that currently the only people that they give money to are advertisers and if it's going to get to a point where they're going to start giving publishers money is that going to then impact the trust that consumers have when they're accessing media you know will they think oh if I don't know obviously we don't yet know what the financial side of the code is going to be but if it gets to a point where publishers are even starting to bargain with the big tech platforms on what amount they can get, if there's any sort of deals that are being done, especially if we're going to use really vague terms like Frydenberg has used up until this point, I think there could be that conversation down the track that maybe somebody would say, okay, if News Corp's 
partnered differently with Google or partnered differently with Facebook, is their news suddenly going to be suddenly going to spot that news way higher up the feed? So I think, um, yeah, and back onto Hugh Mark saying July, it seems to me like this might be a bit more of a complex issue that needs a bit more time to be hammered out. Which is, I suppose, part of the algorithm question, which is another part of the announcement, Brit, where effectively the government's saying, hey, we may tell you that we want to um, see more of your algorithm. Now, this is Google's secret source, insisting that they show um, what drives the search algorithm. Um, That just feels like something which is effectively commercial in confidence. You know, that the the risk being you'll get um you know all these kind of sort of grubby seo specialists not that i'm implying that all seo specialists are grubby just for the record but everyone who who works out ways of gaming the system will get new information for doing it it could become incredibly high stakes if google actually decides well australia's small enough for a test case maybe we just won't do google in australia anymore um at what point do you think the government potentially backs down Well, I think Frydenberg said that he's not sure if the legislation will work and that it will require a lot of work over the next three months to actually kind of get this up off the ground and and for it to have legs. I think you're right in that that's what Google's argument will be, right? I mean, its, its algorithms is essential to its business model, is essential to its success and is a competitive advantage. So, I mean... I'm sure that's what they'll be pushing pushing back on, whether or not the government, you know, can demand for, you know, the algorithm to be made public in light of that. I don't know. But, yeah, I'm sure that those are the conversations that will be happening over the next three months. Next, another big week in broadcasting. Lots going on in TV and radio this week. Hannah, let's start with radio. Two new programming strategies from a couple of different broadcasting organisations announced this week with one thing in common. Yeah, so over at Nine Radio, uh, the Macquarie Sports Radio rebranded stations 2UE, 4BH, 6GT and Magic are going to get a new breakfast show hosted by Stevie Jacobs. Uh, That was announced this week. Um, I think, well, before before I go into that, the other announcement we had this week was Christian O'Connell has finally revealed what his expand to national will be. You may remember he sent out a tweet about that a couple of months ago, which was then denied by ARN, or at least they didn't comment on it then. But we finally found out what that was all about. He's also going to be hosting a national show. This one is going to be uh, every night. I think what we were referring to in the intro there, though, is that um, this is all going to be, from what we can discern at this time, this is all going to be pre-recorded stuff that is kind of repurposed in those slots. So it's kind of an easy win for these radio stations to say, hey, we're rolling out new content across the board, but it's just kind of you know, the kind of best of pieces that they're also using in podcasts, also using on weekends, and they're just being repurposed into these shows. Well, let's start with Stevie Jacobs and Nine. Now, that one seems to be what happens, you know, it's what goes on with Smooth FM, for instance, Nova's channel is you get somebody who's quite a big name, 
and you couldn't possibly afford to have them turn up in the studio every day and be on live for several hours. And of course, it's a lot more efficient to just record the links, you know, talk about what a lovely morning it is, and then just have the robot play the music in between the links at the time. And you can, you know, you could knock off a all the links to a show in a matter of minutes. And I'm sure you can record a week, a week's worth of shows in let's say half a day or something. So that, that I guess is the efficiency play for the nine network. Cause that's the second string one. They've got obviously with two GB and three AW really powerful talk stations, but then they've never quite known what to do with that, that other network. We talked a bit about when it was the Macquarie sports network. So that that's efficient enough. Um, and then the bit that I'm struggling to get my head around is there are lots of strong breakfast shows on commercial FM in a single city who then have a sort of repackaged national version in the evenings that, that, that goes out across the whole network. Is this actually any different or is this just a little bit of smoke and mirrors from um, Australian radio network? So just so I'm not uh, throwing my own hat into the ring, this is the official quote that came from ARN. Both the Morning Breakfast Show and the new National Night Show will become the Christian O'Connell Show, extending the content across both time slots. The content for the Night Show will be applicable to the national audience and the morning for Melbourne. To me, that very much sounds like they're just going to perhaps skew the Morning Breakfast Show a little bit more national so that there's a bit more content that they can then roll out across the board and then that kind of best of clip show will be played in the afternoon. And you're right. This is what a lot of stations do. I think Kyle and Jackie O have their hour of power that gets rolled out. So this isn't a new thing. Um, It's a little bit cheeky to announce it like it's a brand new program, especially because Christian already has a weekend breakfast program as well, which is a best of clip show too. But I think what's really interesting is the commitment they have behind him as a star to be able to roll out across a national audience, you know, Kyle and Jackie O are obviously a huge name in the Australian radio uh, space. Christian is the top breakfast presenter in Melbourne on FM at this point in time, but he has only been in the market for just over a year, I believe. So I think it's quite interesting that they're showing this much, you know, they're willing to put this much behind him. I wonder as well just how much of a risk is involved if that's what the strategy is. You know, I remember a radio programmer saying to me once, the thing about a really good city breakfast show is it could only go to air on that day in that city. And again, if you listen to the Christian O'Connell show out of Melbourne and I'm, you know, although I'm not based in Melbourne, I've I've listened to the podcast quite a lot. They try so hard to localise it. You know, you make such an effort not to be the kind of clueless pommy who doesn't understand anything. You know, he talks about the suburbs. He name checks the suburbs. If he goes, you know, shop into a particular sort of area, he'll talk about that area, anything to localise it. And I think that's the reason why he's gone, as you say, in little more than a year to number one on FM. So that for me is the big risk is, Do you, with an eye to the national prize, water down or dilute what you're doing in the morning? Um, And is there risk attached to that, if so? I don't know in response to that question, but in response to the programming choice, I think they've kind of scheduled it to make sure there's as little risk as possible. In Brisbane and Adelaide, O'Connell will be replacing one hour of Jason PJ at night, which is a syndicated program from Breakfast Duo, Jason PJ. 
Um, in Perth, it's one hour from Kendall Crake, who hosts weeknights and weekends. So that's one hour essentially of music and talk back. And in Melbourne and Sydney, it's literally just one hour of music programming. So they're not kind of pushing the boat out too far with this one. They're not saying, you know, that he's going to replace anything that's pulling in major ratings figures at this time. But I think, yeah, you're right. The really interesting bit will be how they handle that morning content, which arguably is where he's got his most strength. Well, still with broadcasting, Nine's Lego Masters came back on Sunday night. Now, before we talk about how it rated, let's remind ourselves of our predictions from last week. Look, last year it premiered to 1.377 million. Uh, This is its second outing but we're all in lockdown and going a bit bananas. Oh, goodness. I, I truly hate being wrong, Tim, but I'm going to go with 1.42 million. Metro Hannah, Lego your market. guess. Um, I'm going to go 1.35. Brett, can you do it twice in a row? <laughs> what number did you say, Viv? 1.4 what? 1.42, Brittany. Okay, well, if we're going over or under, I'll go 1.45. <laughs> oh, I don't like it. I don't like your strategies, Brittany. I think any high ground you have is gone out And Zoe, I'm going to bring any. you in as well. I was, I mean, I'm going to pull a viv that she did last week and like where she showed us all her, like her notebook and said she was going to say 699 after Hannah said 700 because I was genuinely going to say 1.42. So now I don't know. I'm going to, like, just take a stab at a clean 1.4. Wow, I'm going to come in over the top of everyone and I'm going to go at 1.5. So, in fact, it rated 1.239 million viewers. So we were all over-optimistic, but this week's victor, Hannah, Thank you. Thank you very much for finally recognising the incredible talents that I bring to Mumbrella. And obviously we we all guessed a bit higher, but I think Nine will be happy enough with that number, won't they? Yeah, I think they will. It is down on last year. Um, Last year it blew in at 1.377 million, which honestly I still can't really believe that a show premiered that high for its first season. Um, but I think, I mean, nine have got to be happy with that, especially because as I think we covered last week or perhaps the week before, it hasn't necessarily been a guaranteed win across the board for launches. MasterChef obviously performing mind-blowingly well for 10, but House Rules for seven, not so well. Um, Married at First Sight finished still pretty high, but did finish down on last year. So I think there was probably still a little bit of concern out there that maybe it wouldn't do as well, but nine have to be happy with that also every night it was on this week it did stay above that one million metro viewers so it hasn't dropped off significantly so i think they're guaranteed to be happy in a moment we'll be asking whether australia's press is as free as we like to think and later keep listening to hear our regular sponsored segment audio diaries from audio specialist agency eardrum ralph van dyke founder of Eardrum, talks to some of Australia's leading CMOs about the growing role audio is playing in their brand's development. Today, you'll hear his chat with Chris Taylor, Chief Marketing Officer of the National Heart Foundation of Australia. 
So Australia has always been quite proud of its role as a leading democracy. Reporters Without Borders might differ, though, Hannah. They might. Um, We have just slid, Australia, I should say, has just slid in the World Press Freedom Index, which comes from Reporters Without Borders. Um, We've dropped five places from 2019 to sit in 26th position overall. Um, While that's still a fairly high position, I would say, you know, in the on the global scale, it is a bit of a blow for Australia, who up until now have considered ourselves, like you said, pretty, you know, pretty good on that sort of on that sort of front. But I think when you read the report from Reporters Without Borders, it's pretty clear what the issues are. Obviously, 2019 saw the two AFP raids, the one on um, News Corp journalist Annika Smethurst, and also the one on the ABC headquarters. It also saw the closure or drawn out closure of AAP Newswire. Um, it also, we're now also at a point where the majority of our private media is owned by two companies in News Corp and Nine Entertainment. There are some really damning comments in this report. Um, new, uh, Reporters Without Borders also says, Prime Minister Scott Morrison is also a climate change sceptic and his government tends to obstruct coverage of environmental issues. And there's a couple of bits in there as well about um, taking away funding from broadcasting as well. I think this is that thing again. I think we talked about this perhaps last year when the um, when the raids were happening. When you see your country's media reflected back to you in this way, and when you see these kind of comments about it, you it takes a little. I was reading this report this morning, and it kind of took me by surprise because I was like, "You kind of feel a little bit defensive. You're like, we're not that bad, really." And then you read more into it, and you're like, "Oh, when you list it all in one space, it is quite confronting." You know, they're talking about the defamation laws from 2018. They're talking about the national security laws which have been brought in since 9/11. Um, and overall, it's not looking great for us. So, Britt, let me bring you in as well on this. You've written about this topic a few times, and um, you've certainly written about the libel laws of Australia. It's actually quite hard as a journalist or as a publisher staying the right side of the libel laws if you want to tell it like it is. Yeah, I mean, look, to Hannah's point about it being confronting, I kind of would have been more surprised if Australia rose up the ranks of such a list rather than slid down the ranks after the year that we've had. And I think the defamation laws do play a big part of that. I mean, one of the biggest things about how defamation law operates in this country compared to others is that the onus is on the defendant essentially to prove that yes, okay, it may have been defamation, but here's why I have a complete defense of it. And that could be, for example, something like truth. Whereas in other markets, it's you have to actively prove that you were defamed and also it wasn't true, for example. And when you're, when you're proving something's true, it's an awfully high standard to reach. And while, of course, you know, accuracy and quality and thoroughness are all traits of a good journalist and a good publication, it does make it really difficult to get some of those important stories, which are evidently usually the kind of prickly legal ones across the line when there's such a risk and when, you know, making sure that peace can stay up might mean going all the way through the court process and being really financially hit as a result. So 
yeah, defamation law is something that year after year comes up from publishers and journalists as a, a real kind of barrier and continues to do so. Well, next, who's in Adlan's naughty corner? The Ad Standards Community Panel has banned a couple of ads. Coles is in trouble for marketing to kids, while Sportsbet was found to have been sexist in how it referred to Meghan Markle in this online ad. Sudden death now on the towel flick. Alec. Yes! The Aussie's got him a beauty! Look at that wrist action! The bloke's nearly as whipped as Prince Harry. Another make-it-look-easy moment from Sportsbet. Tim, you covered this one. Sportsbet had a fairly interesting interpretation of what whipped means, didn't they? Look, one of the interesting things about Sportsbet is it feels like some of this is a big game to them. You know, you you almost wonder when you read their responses to the Ad Standards Community Panel, do they really think this will fly? I remember a while back there was one where they were trying to argue when they were they were defending the putting the roids into Android when they were using drug cheap Ben Johnson, that you didn't need a moral compass for advertising or something along those lines. This time, the the, the bone of contention is the, the, the use of the phrase whipped and what it means when you're talking about a, a man in a relationship and his relationship with the partner if he's whipped by them. Um, their completely laughable claim, the whipping references relates to the topical and globally debated decision of Prince Harry stepping down from certain royal duties as a result of his marriage. Being whipped in this instance goes to the significance of what Prince Harry has sacrificed for love. It does not speak to Mrs. Markle's character or gender. Being being whipped is a colloquial term used to describe a dynamic between two people who are besotted with each other so much that one may be influenced by the decisions of another. Um, fortunately, the Ad Standards Community Panel did not uh, buy that steaming pile of bullshit and instead observed that, um, according to the Collins Dictionary definition, panel noted that the phrase whipped is commonly understood to refer to a heterosexual man who is deferring to his female partner in some way and usually in a manner that suggests that the woman is domineering and the male is powerless. The panel noted that the phrase whipped in this context is used as an abbreviation of pussy whipped which is a slang term suggesting a man is submitting to his partner's will implicitly under the threat of the denial of sexual activities which is all something I didn't come Monday morning expect to be writing about on Umbrella, <laughs> to be quite honest. Um, but yeah, unsurprisingly with that, um, the sports ad, uh, sports bet ad was banned, although it was a little kind of sort of coda to it. Um, the other complaint about the ad was that the Chinese competitor in this tower, fictional tower whipping contest was called Chi Ting or CH Ting. Um, and that goes um, on the similar theme that a previous sports bet character was called Mi Chi Ting. Um, and on both occasions, um, Ad Standards has cleared sports bet of racism over those complaints. I think you're right, though. I mean, some of the campaigns we see coming out of sports bet are unbelievably biased towards being you know, that kind of confrontational in-your-face humour. And I think 
it must just be part of their marketing campaign to say, okay, we're going to be able to run these ads for a short amount of time. They're not necessarily going to last for that long because they're probably going to get pulled by ad standards. We're probably going to get in trouble from ad standards. But does it matter because everybody's going to be talking about them and there's going to be a bunch of people on Twitter who love them and there's going to be a bunch of sports bet users who love them? I think it kind of points to a wider issue in our ad standards, uh, in the way ad standards is run in this country. But, you know, that's probably a debate for another time. Um, Zoe, you're the one who often writes about uh, the ad standards rulings. What's your take on this one? I mean, to start off with, I've got to say, as a reporter who covers advertising, there is no greater joy than refreshing the ad standards cases page one day and finding a whole bunch of new entries because sometimes the things you find on there are completely bonkers. But then in other cases, such as this one, it's very much justified. But yeah, it seems to be sports bets kind of shtick to find the most controversial moment in pop culture at that time or a throwback in the case of the Todd Carney ad, which I will touch on in a minute, and then just taking it and running and seeing how far they can push the Australian advertising industry before they tip over the line. So, for example, with the Todd Carney ad, It made reference to his bubbler incident, which happened several years ago, and and many people complained about that ad sort of glorifying him and glorifying his actions, but that ad was cleared by the Ad Standards Panel, even though it was the second most complained about ad of 2019. Prior to that, the most complained about ad of 2018 was a sports bet ad to do with a man manscaping in his bathroom. So the manscaping ad was banned, but you can see just from those two examples how closely Sportsbet walks the line and also how hard it must be for the ad standards panel to make rulings on these sorts of ads. In that, in that same Todd Carney ad, people complained about, under the vilification clause, about a sort of elderly woman that's depicted in that ad waiting for a prince from Africa to come that she had previously met online to the airport to meet her. But the complaints regarding that in the last year's ad were dismissed. So it really does show how difficult it is to draw lines in this case. And so, I don't know, yeah, I think it does sort of reflect a lack of distinct clarity maybe in our advertising codes? I think um, it's similar to the press council as well. They struggle with a lot of the repercussions of these kind of decisions. It's like, oh, we've put some true, we've gone into some training or we've made sure it won't happen again. And there's not really that much, you know, that comes out of it if it does happen again. So I think if you're not going to hold them to sticking to these standards, then what's the point? But also uh, from ad standards, Coles are also in trouble uh, for this ad. Australia, there are rare Coles stickies to collect. The bronze Ella egg, a sparkly Connor, silver buster and a glow-in-the-dark chip. Can you collect them all? New sticky fresh friends, Coles. Good things, great value. Zoe, what was wrong with that ad? So the main issues um, surrounding this ad from Coles were the sort of rules that surround marketing to children and targeting children specifically with ads to do with toys. 
This ad is for Coles Collectible Stickies campaigns, which for those of you who may be unfamiliar, they're like little rubber vegetables that come when a customer makes a purchase of $30 or more. So the complainant who raised this ad with ad standards was concerned about the price of the stickies not being explicitly shown within the ad and also the fact that stickies are not a product within their own right but they were being exclusively advertised by Coles, which is a breach of the children's code. In making its decision, the panel has to actually go through a process where it determines whether the ad actually was targeting children specifically before actually ruling on the complaint. And um, given the sort of animated visuals in the ad and also the fact that it's a child doing the overvoice, they ruled that it was targeting children. It's an actually a really interesting case because it's based on a technicality to do with the fact that the toys are sort of a reward for a customer spending $30 or more. And while it is disclosed in the terms and conditions at the bottom of the ad, the panel ruled that the wording of the terms and conditions were targeted to adults and then wouldn't be understood by the children that the ad was actually addressing. I think um, one of the really interesting points about this complaint was that um, they they likened stickies to gambling for children and suggested that perhaps children are, the ad is targeting children to therefore make the children put psychological pressure on their parents, which um, any parent, especially my parents, will be able to relate to. Brit, I know you've got some thoughts on this one. My main thought is just obviously that's what they're doing. (laughs) Like the entire point of these little collectibles is that kids will see them, kids will want them, kids will ask their parents to spend more money. It's the little shop thing all over again. I, it seems weird to me that we keep having these same discussions. Completely. I mean, look, advertising generally is, you know, encouraging children to pester their parents to spend more money. I mean, I think Zoe hit the nail on the head when she said it's obviously a technicality because you're right. My feelings about this is that, okay, well, Stickies, Little Shop, McDonald's Happy Meals with the little toys, McDonald's Monopoly, like all of these campaigns are essentially, you know, trying to get you to spend money to get the little toy or to get the one that you don't have, like, you know, Tarzos and Pokemon cards are like the same thing. I just feel like, you know, I look, usually I roll my eyes big time whenever someone says that it's a slippery slope, but I feel like I might be the uh the person saying that it's a bit of a slippery slope in this case. But it's interesting in that whether, you know, not using a child in the ad and disclosing the price in the ad would have actually meant that this was fine and it was just those few little things that made it against the rules rather than the whole premise of you know using these toys as a way to you know encourage kids to gamble. Coming up next we have our regular sponsored segment Audio Diaries created by audio specialists Eardrum. This week Ralph talks to Chris Taylor CMO of the National Heart Foundation of Australia. Just a quick heads up, the following interview was recorded prior to the COVID-19 outbreak. Hello, Umbrella Cast lovers, and welcome back to Audio Diaries. 
where we talk to Australia's leading CMOs, marketers and brand managers about the growing role of audio for their brands or the brands they admire. With me today is Chris Taylor, Chief Marketing Officer of the National Heart Foundation of Australia. Recent campaigns have garnered a lot of media interest, including serial killers, heartless words and walk away. What they lack in marketing budget, they more than make up for in creative cut-through. Welcome, Chris. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You've generated some really high-profile campaigns for the Heart Foundation. Which one stands out for you personally? Uh, I think uh, in the last 12 months, uh, we've done some pretty impactful work. Mm. The big one, the big standout is definitely Serial Killer. Yeah. Um, that was a collaborative campaign partnership with News Corp. Uh, that was... Um, an interesting one. Um, positioning Australia's biggest killer heart disease as a serial killer was was an, a natural link, um, particularly for News Corp, that because they've spent so much time with the true crime genre. And for us, it was just a, a, a fabulously creative way to start talking about a topic that people had forgotten about. Oh, and as part of that serial killers campaign, I understand you ran ads in the Who the Hell is Hamish podcast. And I'd say you are probably one of the few brands that could really align themselves with a true crime podcast. Let, let's have a listen to one of those ads now. My name is Bill Doyle. And I survived an attack from Australia's worst serial killer. I know how lucky I am to be alive when so many others didn't make it. For me, it's the psychological scars that are the hardest. It's something I'll endure forever. Heart disease is Australia's biggest killer, taking 51 lives every single day. Don't be the next victim. Go to heartfoundation.org.au for more information. The the idea of using extending it into audio was that always on the cards? Or was it something that just was a just beautiful fit as it came about? Probably not from the beginning, but as as the the campaign took off, opportunities um, evolved, and across the whole News Corp network, they were able to identify where the serial killer message fit and, and, and that created opportunities. One of those was an obvious one and that was um, the Who the Hell is Hamish podcast which followed up their hugely successful Teacher's Pet podcast. Is that probably the the example of a recent campaign which had the, the, the biggest sort of audio element to it? In terms of our campaigns? Yeah. No, but I think we learnt from that with the power of, of audio mm. um, into our next campaigns that um, for, for me... Audio is an incredibly emotive medium um, mm. and you only have to think about when you hear a song from the past, You it transports you back to mm. where you first heard that or where you heard it a lot, yeah. whether it was a kid, um, whether you were you know, a teenager, whether you're at uni, you just remember where you were when you hear that song, and yeah. that, that, which is why I think audio is such an important component in emotional connection. Mm. Um, and as a, as a client... For me, one of my pet hates is when the when your agency um, comes up with a, a rough cut of of the the TVC or the video that you're doing, and they put a track on there and say, "Look, it's just a placeholder." Yeah, and you fall in love with it. Exactly. And of course, you can't afford to have yeah, it. That's um, right. <laughs> but but why that that is is because it is such an emotive connection to what you're trying to say, mm. which is why audio is 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 so. Flap, fabulously flexible because when you talk about things like radio, you can you've still got that emotive connection through the use of in this case um, well-known tracks. Yeah. Do you find that audio is becoming uh, 
a, a bigger part of the conversations that you're having. There was recently the Ipsos um, uh, study that was released that the the number of brands that have audio branding assets was was something like eight percent. I'm not surprised that it's only eight percent that use it in that way. I haven't read the article, but but I think that's because we as marketers tend to be too inconsistent in terms of the f- the structure and the format and the, the the brand marks that we use, and it's too easy to think about the use of 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 colours and um, uh, of textures and and images to rep- represent your brand, and and forget about the fact that that mnemonic sign off can be actually one of the more powerful things that mm. people remember. So it doesn't surprise me because I think we as marketers probably fail to be as consistent and as simple as, as we probably should be. Mm. And I think it's, uh, you mentioned brand marks. It's interesting the number of brands that have actually incorporated the, the thing that you should be <laughs> owning, which is the sound of a heartbeat, you know, the, the, or, or using as a, you know, to inspire some, some piece um, for your own marketing, which I understand you've done, uh, you know, to an extent. But um, even like Glaxo, GlaxoSmithKline uh, have, have got a heartbeat as their mnemonic. We'll have a listen to that now. And then there's Audi. Uh, Audi have used that as kind of the central uh, part of their mnemonic. And even to an extent, Netflix, you could argue that that percussive sound, which is not melodic, but percussive, um, has that real statement, mm. uh, as, as we all will recognise. This is something that you've explored in a couple of your recent campaigns, right? We have. And um, it, it, the use of heart um, in imagery and um, as an icon for us is... Is something that's obviously so so obvious mm. um, and has such a, a, a deep resonance across society, whether it's love or um, wh- whether it's talking about uh, someone's the depth of someone's feelings. Um, but that also means that it's used a lot. Mm. So I'm not surprised that a whole lot of brands use that as as a symbol because it, it's so meaningful to so many people. For for us, what we started to do was introduce the heartbeat at the end of the of at the end of our video or, or TVCs because it's 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 so relevant and mm. and generally the advertising the, the the creative that we put together, we try to be so impactful that it makes people stop and think. And I think it just resonates with that heartbeat at the end. But often it's not just the heartbeat, but we've often used the um, the, the the flat line of um, the ECG machines, yeah. and um, which creates another overlay and, and a moment of um, of stark contrast mm. and, and makes people stop and think. So, so for us, it's not just as simple as the heartbeat, but it's also you know the heartbeat at a time when it's you know at at some serious risk. And it's interesting that the uh, that that's you know, the story around the, the mnemonic that's used because uh, we're we're working on a number of briefs at the moment, and the the, the inspiration behind what's created is is really important it's to be able to attach a, a narrative to why that's there, because you know with time, every sound becomes synonymous with a brand given the enough exposure, but to have that mean something to have that actually communicate something about the personality or the brand is that that's the important thing so that's when it actually becomes useful are there any brands that spring to mind in australia or, or further afield that you believe are doing well in terms of using uh, or investing in audio assets over a consistent 
period of time, whether that is a, a brand voice or a, uh, a consistent piece of music? Look, I think Westpac and some of the work they've done recently, they've done, um, they've re-recorded well-known tr- songs. Uh, they did Fleetwood Mac's Landslide and they also did Hero from David Bowie. And, and I think using Australian um, artists to mm. re-record those. And I think there's nothing more haunting than than hearing uh, a different adaptation of a song that you know well from your past. Yeah. And for me, that that's that's almost half the the battle is remembering the, the the brand recognition or brand recall of the ad can often be so low, but that that song will stick in your mind. Mm. And suddenly, I mean, we wouldn't ever admit to going and and, and humming advertising jingles in our head, but <laughs> well, but but okay. with those, with with those songs that they've chosen, they're so iconic and they mean so much to so many people over a long period of time. You just suddenly have the now have the Westpac song in your head. Yeah. Um, so I think that that is is a, a, a great execution of understanding the power of uh, soundtracks to be to have an emotional connection, and people will remember Westpac because of it. Interesting. There was a, a British campaign for the for the your equivalent there, the Heart Foundation, their British Heart Foundation, um, and Vinnie Jones was the spokesperson. Uh, for their campaign, and they used the Bee Gees "Staying Alive" as a a way of, as a, almost a, a mnemonic to remember the the rhythm of the, the the CPR, and that was a great use of music. I'll play a little bit of that. There are times in life where being tough comes in handy. Say some geezer collapses in front of you, what do you do? We need a volunteer that ain't breathing. Here's one I made earlier. First off, you call nine nine nine. I know. Then, no kissing. You only kiss your missus on the lips. You push hard and fast here on the sovereign to stay alive. I, I love that that campaign that they did. Um, first of all, Vinnie Jones is so iconic. You could not have had a better person to yeah. front that campaign. And everyone loves the Bee Gees. Uh, that that track is something that you will will always certainly stop me. Uh, stop. I'll stop and listen to. Yeah. And um, so. Uh, having that in the rhythm of of, of CPR is just a, uh, probably the most perfect example of how sound um, and audio can play a role in in an activation. Interestingly, other heart foundations have picked that up. So uh, the US Heart Association used different surroundings, but yep. used the same track. And in Australia, we did a collaboration with the Australian Resuscitation Council in Tasmania. Um, using the actors from the rake and ah, set up right. a scene in a courtroom where a, where a, a lady has a, a, a heart event mm-hmm. and they do CPR and they they turn that track on to and and give her CPR to the sound of it. So ah, it's, right. it's it's been picked up and well used across um, across multiple uh, heart associations across the world. The platforms that are increasingly popular, streaming music and podcasts and voice activated devices. Do you see any particular one of those that you think could be could be really relevant for your communications? We've looked at things like streaming and and playlists. Um, I think we've we've creatively looked at ways to create playlists that help to deliver our messages. Um, haven't really landed on anything yet, but it's, look, we're, we're always looking at, at, at different ways to deliver the messages that I talked about. And some of those can be in ways that are quite surprising. I use the example of, of advertising in the Who the Hell is Hamish podcast. Now, having an ad for the Heart Foundation in a story about true crime may have been quite uh, a surprise, but 
given the, the content of, mm. of our messaging in there, it made sense. But I think a number of people said, oh, I, I heard that. You know, that, I suppose, proves the fact that it, it it's having some cut through. Hey, well, Chris, thank you very much for your time and your insights. It's been great. Thanks for having me. Always happy to, to come on and, uh, and share my insights. Cheers. Thanks, Chris. And if you'd like to discuss the role audio can play for your brand, whether it's in audio advertising, branded podcasts, or sonic branding, please get in touch with us at Eardrum. You can contact us via our website, eardrum.com, where you'll also hear more examples of our work. Thanks for listening. And that's it for this week. But before we go, Budget Direct announces the launch of its new Budget Direct Money Manager app. The new app is a smart and easy way to track all of your personal finances in one place. Budget Direct is also pleased to confirm that it's providing the new Money Manager app for free to all Budget Direct customers. For more information, just head to the Budget Direct website. That's it for this week, though. Thank you, Hannah. Thank you. Thank you, Brittany. Thanks. Thank you, Zoe. Thank you. Toodlepip. Toodlepip.